You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left at NYC and Stage Left the Podcast. And I'm Raspberry Picking Mogul Jennifer Samard. <laughs> <laughs> raspberry Picking Mogul? Have you been yeah. picking a lot of raspberries? Lately? I go on a lot of nature walks and it's raspberry season. So huh, I'm in I'm in go. the empire business now. You got I've pivoted. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Well, it's good that you have, at long last, have found something that's suited to your particular talents. And my, it's my passion, you know. <laughs> I've, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm following my bliss. What's what are those other catchphrases? I'm living authentically. Okay. Oh. You're living your best life. <laughs> I'm living my best life. What you know? Yeah. So there it is. Well. Obviously, if you're listening to us right now, you know that Jennifer Smart is back in the fold Yay. with us today. Hi, Jen. Hi, my friends. I should actually say, hi, Jennifer. <laughs> hi, Jennifer Jean. You know, when I was a kid, I used to, you know, kids, they play with their names. They used to be Jennifer Jean, JJ, Jenny, Jen Smart. Isn't that oh stupid? <laughs> I know. And do you know, did I ever tell you this? That if I had picked a stage name, do you know what it was going to be? No, tell us. Seth Rudetsky loves it so much because it's so awful. So my name's Jennifer Jean. So my nickname was JJ. So I thought it was, but I didn't like Samard for you know it didn't sound good enough. So JJ Stryker. Isn't that terrible? No. It sounds like a 1980s detective show. It totally. sounds like a porn name. It was well, porn that was name my first thought was porn or name, a, but or a soccer player. JJ. Totally. Oh, no, actually, I yeah. wanted Striver, but I was so young. I thought, and then I looked up what striving meant. I was like, oh no, that's terrible. Yeah. So I switched it to Striker. JJ Striker. So is it is it S T R Y? Yes, with a Y. Yeah, Be- a y. I remember Beanie Feldstein in Hello Dolly found that quite amusing. And every now and then I'll get a text from her, JJ Striker. How's it going? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it needs an exclamation point. JJ Striker. Right. For my porn star soccer playing detective. Raspberry picking future. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow, that's well. a lot of that's that ticks a, that ticks so many boxes. I don't. That's know a multi hyphenate. That's what they call mm-hmm. that. You know? That's what. They, oh, <laughs> so they do. So they do. Well, How are you we, guys? How are you? I'm, you know, I'm good. It's uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's summer. It's summer in the city, and uh, we can't do anything. <laughs> right? Wear a mask. Yeah. Wear, a, Wear mask. a mask. Exactly. Hey, you know what? I'm looking for positive things these days in a sea of suck, and uh, yeah. I will say on July first. I had a moment where I thought, you know, back in March during the shutdown, July seemed so far away. Like to me, that seemed like the outer limit of when we might come back. And it just seemed ages away. And as I look forward to how long we're going to have to do this, I I can't believe it's July already, you know? And and if you look at it in terms of four-month blocks, okay, so we're, you know, we're four months in. That's good. And I just... um. And and I've read that a few companies are already entering phase three of vaccine trials this month Mm. and next. And that's, you know, that's really, that's good news. So anyway, I'm trying to see some silver lining. It's all about a vaccine. Yeah. If if nothing else, this this pandemic has has really proven the elasticity of time, right? Timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, as they say in Doctor Who. Yeah, I think that's a perfect summation. <laughs> well, time is a construct, that is for sure. Um, and our time for season two of The Fabulous Invalid has drawn to a close. This is our last episode before we take a short break for the summer. We will be back in the fall. So we thought that it would be fun to get the band back together for just a quick second and check in and say hello, which we are doing. And I also thought it could be fun since when we started this show uh, two years ago on our first episode with Joel Gray, we talked a little bit about the renaming of the gypsy robe to the legacy robe ceremony. Um, And I thought it would be interesting because now we're at another crossroads um, in the world in a variety of ways, but particularly with the new, I don't know how you would say it, the new name change of um, the great white way to the great bright way. Um, which has stirred up a little bit of controversy on Twitter. I think most people seem to be um, very pro it. I I don't remember how it got started. I think Rob does. But I just wanted to throw it out to the group and see if we had any thoughts or feelings about it. Yeah, well, yeah, I I believe it was Whoopi Goldberg on The View who mused that um, it's time to to change that that phrase. Um, And, you know, it seems to me that some of the controversy, you know, if you can call it that, it might be a non-troversy, but some of the the buzz around uh, this phrase is that, um, of course, if you know the phrase "the Great White Way," it doesn't refer to skin color; it refers to the the lights of Broadway, which you know historically were all white because uh, that's you know what what uh, electricity was like in the in the early days. Um, so you know, so some people are like, okay, or does, is this really you know helping anything? Is this one of those symbolic things that actually doesn't achieve much, or is it a nod to the fact that you know Broadway has been tragically and traditionally a very white space in terms of you know personnel, um, and maybe you know maybe it's time to to change the way we we use that word. So um, I don't I don't feel strongly either way. So my my inclination is just to say, if folks want to call it the Great Bright Way, let's do it. 
Yeah, you know, it, to me, it's sort of it's the it, I equate it to sort of the the addition of the stripes to the gay flag, which when that happened a few years ago, I I wasn't very pro that at the time because for me the gay flag it it what it represents is everyone it includes everyone so at the time my original thought was well we don't need to add any additional stripes however in the last two years, listening to the world and everything that's been going on, I've come to realize that, look, if you feel not included, if you feel marginalized, if you don't feel like you're part of a group and this thing helps bridge that gap or helps you feel included, then I am 100% for it. I think my point of view uh, tends toward absolutely changing the name. Again, it's not up to me, the white woman, to... I think say yes or no. If you're the disenfranchised party, if you're the one that's not included, then if then by all means, you know, let's make it as inclusive as possible. It sort of reminds me of the renaming of of statues or um, uh, brand names or names of towns. And I I have some uh, uh, people that I know in my orbit who are uh, not of my political persuasion who are extremely frustrated by all of that. And like, oh, this is so ridiculous. I'm like, no, well, you're not the one who has to look at a statue of someone who subjugated uh, your entire uh, ancestry for hundreds of years. So right. why don't you STFU? <laughs> because it has nothing, you know? <laughs> so, um, so no, I'm all for it. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, I agree. I think, we, I think we now live in a world where we need to listen more, everyone. Amen. We need to be kinder. And uh, we need to do everything we can, A, to make the world a better place, but B, to make everybody feel like they matter and that they're valued and that they are included. And we are not there yet, but let's hope that we can get there because it's important. Yeah. And, you know, and small gestures like this also have the, you know, capacity to make a big impact, which is what you're alluding to, you know? So, um, you know, it's easy enough to just change it. It's not written down anywhere. It's not law. It's, it's a matter of, you know, how we talk and the words we use. And, you know, of course they, they can be very impactful. Words matter, as I love to say. You do love to say that. Yeah. I do. It's my favorite saying ever. <laughs> um, well, on that note, we have a Rob and I have a big show today. We're finishing out our sort of marathon look at uh, flops and hits. Uh, today is part three of our hits. We're gonna we're gonna deal with a lot of shows in the recent years. And, um, and, and I think we should get to that. But before we do, I just want to tell Jennifer Smart that I love her and that I am very excited to um, see you again soon when the world can do that. And I hope you have a wonderful summer. I hope you all have a wonderful summer too, not just the two of you, my friends, but everyone <laughs> listening. And just remember, take it one day at a time because each day is a challenge mentally, physically, financially, and spiritually. And uh, we're going to get through it. So just stay the course. Yay, let's hope Yay. we do. All righty. Well, on that note, let's get to our show. Let's do it. Moving on to our seventh category, it is the British invasion. So in the 1980s, there was a Broadway was a host to a ton of imports from the West End, some of them not so successful, but some of them becoming like the most successful Broadway shows 
if not ever, uh, certainly for a long time. And it's interesting, I went back and compared some of the numbers from the 1984-1985 Broadway season to the present. Annual Broadway attendance has doubled from 7.2 million to 14.7 million, uh, representing a leap in grosses that far outnumbers that from 209 million to 1.8 billion dollars. And part of that growth, both in butts in the seats and money spent on tickets, was driven by the shows that we're going to talk about right now and the ones that followed, which is the making of Broadway as, as a massive tourist destination twice over, right? Far outstripping what a chorus line did in the 70s, really taking that baton and just running with it. And of course, you know, the British invasion kind of began with Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita in the 1970s, two Android Weber musicals that came to Broadway, but then was really defined in the 1980s by uh, the shows that Cameron McIntosh produced on Broadway, starting with, of course, Cats. Oh, this is a show I think everyone knows is very close to Rob Russo's heart. I just love cats. And I know that's a controversial take uh, in today's cancel culture. So don't cancel me. premiered on Broadway in 1982 and ran 18 years, closing uh, in September of 2000, making it the longest-running show and musical on Broadway, a title it held from 1997 until 2006. And not only was it a huge you know, success here, running 7,485 performances at the Winter Garden Theater, never changing theaters, and for very good reason, it ran in London from ni- even longer, from 1981 uh, until uh, 2002, I believe. Mm-hmm. So over, you know, almost n- nearly 9,000 performances over there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, was just a phenomenon unto itself. And to this day, I feel like no one can really explain why. I mean, Cats is sort of this mystery. Uh, it certainly was in its development. Angeloid Weber, sort of the lore goes, was tired of collaborating with other people, and by other people I mean Tim Rice, and decided he wanted to write something that he could write solely on his own, and returned to T.S. Eliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, which was a collection of poems that he had written for his um, nieces and nephews about cats, anthropomorphized cats. And they were written, actually, I think Andrew Weber discovered that T.S. Eliot had written them while listening to music. And so they lended themselves to a, a natural lyricism that he discovered while um, setting them to, uh, to his own original uh, music. And that was Cats.
I will say the one thing I will slightly correct you on is I think he had, I think, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber did have a collaborator on this. I mean, he he, he did have T.S. Eliot. The oh, nice thing course. is yeah. he didn't have to deal with T.S. Eliot not liking his ideas <laughs> right. or yeah, challenging exactly. <laughs> him. He was he was left solely to his own devices um, yes, yes. with that. And, you know, I have to say, look, I, I have in my life, I've gone hot and cold on cats. Um, mm-hmm. I will say one of, um, one of the many gifts that you have brought to my life, Rob Russo, <laughs> is I have rediscovered my love for cats and I will defend yeah. it. I will die on that hill. Um, I also understand why people drives people batty. I, I get both, yeah. I get both things. I will say this. We've talked to a couple of people, particularly Betty Buckley, mm-hmm. about the creation of of not only her character, but of the show. And I think the thing that everyone says about that original production and the work that they did is that they were very serious right. actors. And they approached Trevor it, Nunn was the director. I the mean, RSC. You know, I yeah. mean, what, what's more serious than that? And so right. I, think, I think what gets diluted throughout the years is the fact that Cats was a very serious piece from an actor's perspective. Right. And right. that those actors all took it very seriously, as did the set designer, as did the choreographer. Mm-hmm. Everybody who created Cats yeah. did not look at it as a joke or right. as something to be ridiculed. They looked at it as art and that they were creating something very important. And that, I think, gets forgotten. Cats won seven 1983 Tony Awards, including Best Musical, but it lost for both choreography and set design, which are two of the most you know important features of the show and what make it so successful. Um, Jillian Lin losing to Tommy Toon for My One and Only and John Napier losing to Ming Cho Lee for K2 because there wasn't a breakout of set design for musical and set design for play back then, right? But that changed pretty quickly. I bet it did because the set for Cats was Unbelievable. As we already mentioned, 42nd Street left the Winter Garden Theater to make way for Cats. And the Schubert's had just finished a restoration of the Winter Garden Theater. And if you have seen Cats, or if you, especially if you saw that original production, you know that it was somewhat of an immersive experience. And they had to paint the entire auditorium black and then cover it with trash to create the set design, which was, I mean, truly, I mean, I I saw it in the nineties and I will never forget sitting in that auditorium. It was so cool. Well, so much so that it became part of the event, right? Eventually during the run, they would let you go up on stage during the intermission, which they didn't do originally. Part of 
the the success of the show of course you know it's 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 thought of as a kids show and for a lot of people it was their first broadway show it was for my brother and sister i saw something else before i saw cats um oh well now you have to tell us what that was well, i saw i saw damn yankees with uh jerry lewis you know i knew that actually it was my first broadway show and wasn't um, it charlotte wasn't charlotte damboy in it at that point well she was out that night i saw nancy hess who was oh son. i love nancy hess yeah, she had to have yeah. been great okay oh, yeah, I, she, well from my from my eight-year-old memory, yes, she was fantastic. But cats, the thing that I, you know, I've I've thought about this a lot, probably longer than I probably should. Oh, for sure. And, you know, it's the the reason for the show's success is best explained by a story that Bernie Jacobs would tell. Bernie Jacobs was, you know, the head of the Schubert organization at the time. And he saw the show in London with his wife, uh, Betty, I believe, who just passed away. And they brought their their grandson with them. And they were somewhat mystified by it. They were like, this is very strange and very odd. And why are all these cats singing and dancing? But their grandson was transfixed. So much so that it finished. And he said, can we see it again? And they were like, you know what? If our grandson wants to see this show again, this is the right show to book in a Schubert house. And they gave the Winter Garden. They forced 42nd Street to leave. They gave the Winter Garden to... Uh, Android Weber and Carrie McIntosh, and they put the show on Broadway because it does, I think, require a childlike willingness to get lost in the fantasy of it in order to truly enjoy it. And I think that's why a lot of adults have a hard time with it and a lot of people ridicule it because they're unwilling to let themselves exist in a world in which Cats is the reality, right? And that's what the show does so thrillingly, whether or not you're interested in that or whether it's your taste, you can't deny that the show brings you into a different world in a way that few other musicals ever have, um, both before or since. And I admire that ambition. I mean, I, I don't think Cats could happen today because I don't know that there would be people willing to give that artistic license and to spend that much money on something that is, you know, on its face, tremendously risky. Well, God bless that little gay grandson. <laughs> we don't know if he was gay, but he probably was. Oh, I think we know. Well, Cats ran for uh, almost 18 years at the Winter Garden Theater, like I said. It grossed $407 million, which makes it the 11th highest grossing show in Broadway history, but has grossed over $3 billion worldwide. The show has been running continuously in Japan since 1983. And I was so bummed when I was in Japan three years ago that I didn't get tickets until I didn't think to get tickets until I got there. And of course, it was sold out because Cats still sells out in Japan every night because it's a sensation. Obviously, they filmed the West End production in 1998, and then there was the film in 2019. 
I'm still back on the story that you went to Japan and didn't see cats in Japan. I know. I, that, to me, you've you've buried the lead it's in finding uh, in Osaka, and I was there for four days and I didn't see it. Yeah, I feel I feel yeah, I feel like I should have known the story. I feel a little um, I feel uncomfortable well, right now. Um, wow, I feel like our wow. friendship is based on a lie. <laughs> So, <laughs> well, there was that Broadway revival in 2016, which I saw again a redacted number of times. Oh, you became a spokesperson for that show, and I have the video to prove it. I was interviewed on New York One about it. That is you true. Saw- I was at the final performance. Um, and, and what were you wearing, Rob? Cat ears. And when we saw the 2019 film, what were we wearing, Rob? Cat ears. You got to wear cat ears. You got to. You, it's about. It's about having that willingness to engage with the material. That's uh, what I've always said about cats. Well, <laughs> dear listener, I have photos of both, and I will show okay. them to the world. We'll be on the internet before too long. Alrighty. Well, moving on to our second mega hit of the uh, British invasion. We're here a I, while, people. Just so well, you know. Well, we'll, we'll keep it along at a nice clip. The second is, of course, Les Misérables. I have to say I have very little to contribute to this because I too have something to confess. Yeah. I never saw Les Mis in its original Broadway run. In is fact, that true? this is true. Wow. I, I did not see Les Mis until a friend of mine went into the tour and I traveled to Philadelphia to see them perform in the tour. That was my first experience with Les Mis. Yeah. And it wasn't even the original production, right? It was a revised version that then came in and played Broadway, but it was not the turntable. You know, it was the revival. Yeah. It was the revival. But before that revival came to Broadway, it toured yeah. the country for like a, a year or something. I saw it in DC. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, um, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way, I feel sorry for you, Jamie, because that original Broadway production was incredible. I saw it three times. I can't believe I saw it three times and I was like a teenager. And for a long time, it was the show that I had seen the most. Les Mis, of course, based on the Victor Hugo uh, novel, started in Paris in 1980 and then in all French. And there's a recording of it. There's a, a great recording of it in all French that's pretty cool. You can see the beginnings of what would become the musical that we all know. The idea actually came from um, Alan Boublil, the um, French lyricist and uh, co-book writer of the musical, who was seeing Oliver in London and saw uh, Oliver on stage and he thought of Gavroche, the character from Les Mis, and went back to Les Mis and thought, you know what, let's turn this into a musical. So he and uh, Claude-Michel Schoenberg, the composer, wrote that first version. And then in 1985, um, after a lot of development um, with the Royal Shakespeare Company, they uh, produced it in London with uh, a little-known actor named Patti Lapone, starring as Fantine. Obviously, she was uh, an acclaimed uh, superstar by then. And that production is still running. 
1985 production in London is still running. Well, not right now because we're in this hellscape of a pandemic, but prior to the shutdown was still running. Um, and then, of course, came to New York in 1987 without Patti Lapone. Without Patti Lapone, because she had done it. And I love that about Patti Lapone. She had already done it in London. She didn't want to do it again. Actually, I believe what she says is that it was a, it was a perfect working Company. experience. Yeah. And right. she didn't think it could ever be recreated again. And so she yeah. wanted to live with that memory, which I love that. Because yeah. God knows she would have come to New York with Sunset Boulevard if she could uh, have. And so, which, yeah. which you know, yeah. that's a whole other podcast. But I'm just saying that like that argument, everyone always says she doesn't do anything twice. And I don't, it's not entirely true. I just want to point out that Les Mis was because it was such a beautiful experience. And I, coming from an artist saying that, I think is to be respected. And that's Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And when it arrived in New York, it had the biggest advance that any musical had ever, any show had ever had with a $4 million. It was a $4.5 million production and they already had $4 million in ticket sales on the day that it opened. A show, very famously, I don't think got very good reviews. But No, it did not. um, You know, sort of, Instantly, there's a story, I, I think it was Cameron McIntosh who read the reviews and was all depressed and then the next day called the box office and couldn't get through because the phones were ringing off the hook and then went down to the theater and there was a line around the block. And he was like, okay, we have a hit. Um, and Again, of course, a line around the block. Line around the block, yes. You know, And that original production ran 16 years and two months, 6,680 performances. It remains today the sixth longest running show in Broadway history and has already had two revivals. So yep. the 2006 revival at the Broadhurst and then the 2014 revival back at the Imperial. Forgot about the revival at the Broadhurst. Yeah, in 06. Yeah. With oh, um, was Daphne Rubin Vega in that? I believe so. Oh yeah. my God. All right. I've lied to the world. I saw you that saw production. Wow, yes. This has been a journey, Jamie. Wow. Not only did oh. I see Daphne Rubin Vega, I went back to see Leah Salonga. <laughs> you saw it twice. How about oh, that? It only, it only ran about a year. Yeah, Maybe I was drinking and I I totally yeah. blocked that memory out. Oh my God, I'm a fraud. Glad we, I, I'm glad we could unlock it though. And, yeah. you know, and so that, and was, share it here. that yeah. was, that was based on the original design, but scaled down yeah. a little bit, right? There was I still, think so. Was there was a yeah. turntable, right? Yeah, there was a turntable. It was all everything was black and blue yeah. and dark, and it was a play on light and oh, yeah, shit. no projections, none of that stuff. Yeah, twice, um, twice because I went back for Liam and and I have to say, you know, she did that track, which I I don't think Daphne did. She did the track where you know you have to play all the other parts yes. after mm-hmm. you die. Yeah. And I, I, she wasn't as convincing as a soldier. Yeah. I, I will, I will say, love her as I do. She was marvelous. But well, the story that I was told uh, or read—I I can't remember now—is that Patti Lapone, um, you know, as Fantine in London, um, was excited about the track because you come on, you sing a killer song, and then you die, and then you don't have to come back until the end right. of Act Two. And when you sing a little reprise, and it's you know wonderful and she was like oh perfect part so she managed to make herself not available or not around as they were as they were staging the rest of the show except for one day when she happened to be in the auditorium and they were staging a barricade scene and they needed bodies and they pulled her and she said oh 
fuck, now I'm going to have to do this every night. And so that's the track that you're talking about where you play Fontaine, but also you're kind of a barri- an, an anonymous barricade person for a little portion of the show. <laughs> Well, Classic. Leah Salonga just looked like a little boy, right? They put like right, a boy sure. wig a on her, on. and yeah, you know, <laughs> she looked like she was wearing her father's clothing. You know, it just didn't quite, it didn't quite work. But she did nail that song. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, the subtitle of the show for a long time and all of its advertising was "The World's Most Popular Musical," and it has grossed more than two point seven billion dollars. It's been on every continent, every language. Um, on Broadway, it was four hundred and six million dollars in grosses, and of course, it was a film in twenty twelve by um, Tom Hooper. So there's no denying that Les Mis is a phenomenon and one of the greatest hits uh, on Broadway. It's the longest-running musical in the West End because it opened before Phantom, uh, and it's only the second-longest-running musical in the world after The Fantastics, which we didn't talk about because it was an off-Broadway musical, but obviously The Fantastics ran off-Broadway from 1960 to 2002, which, I mean, is a record that will probably someday be surpassed by Phantom of the Opera, but uh, we shall see. All righty, well, speaking of The Phantom of the Opera, it's our third show. Another transition. Yeah, another transition. you got to have transitions. Phantom, right? I mean, come on. The Phantom of Broadway. Uh, It's been haunting the Majestic Theater since over 13,370 performances, 32 years, uh, and no sign of slowing down. I have to tell you, I see it every year as a little tribute to Hal Prince, who would famous for checking back into the show. And the last time I went to buy tickets on like a Thursday afternoon in August, there was a line at the box office. And if that doesn't tell you all you need to know about why Phantom of the Opera <laughs> remains a hit, I don't know what to tell you. I'm pretty um, sure I was your date for that viewing, right? Yes, yes, yes. We so we had great seats, the best seats I've ever had for Phantom of the Opera. Um, and I have to say, the audience was, let's say, international, and yeah. they were riveted. They were. Yeah. Pr- I mean, there were a few cell phones and t- people taking pictures, well, but but I have yeah. to say, how many years into the run? Thirty-two years, something like yeah. that, and people were wrapped. Yeah. Well, there are two things operating there. I think. Um, Number one, it's this show is sort of the last connection that we have to the golden age of Broadway um, because Hal Prince directed it and it still bears his fingerprints. And unlike, you know, other shows that have been revived that are sort of a facsimile of the original, you know, auteur's touch, The Phantom of the Opera has remained on Broadway since 1988. It was Harold Prince's production of The Phantom of the Opera. And it's thrilling to experience a show the way that musicals used to be directed and staged. And then the second thing I think is a testament to the show is that they keep that show in tip top shape. Every crystal is shiny. Every bead is in place. The orchestra sounds gorgeous. The They rotate 
the the stars in and out of the show, so they're always fresh and uh, just so well healed and rehearsed. I've seen it. I see it every year. It's never tired. It is never tired. Whether you see it on a Tuesday night in the dead of winter or you know a Saturday night in the heat of summer, um, it is always always in tip top shape. And I think that's because you know Harold Prince learned. Um, from working with you know George Abbott, who never showed up. Once the show opened, George Abbott was done with it. He never showed up. And Hal Prince thought, well, I'm not going to do that when I direct or when I produce. I'm going to be a continual force. And so he did. He showed up to see the Phantom of the Opera, I believe it was once a month at least, and was involved in casting and running rehearsals up until he passed away um, this past year. So um, you know, that to me is one of the most exciting things about the Phantom of the Opera is that you can still be in touch with the golden age of Broadway when you go to see it. Um, and of course, you know, Android Rubber's score, right? I mean, it's, it's at this point so well known and so done that you can, you know, you can forget about how superb it is much like Les Mis. I mean, I went to see the New York pops perform last year and they did a suite from Les Mis and it reminded me how gorgeous that score is. And it's the same with the Phantom of the Opera. I mean, say what you will, whether you like Andrew Weber or not, you can't deny that um, the man can write a really good tune. Another confession, I didn't see Phantom of the Opera until probably 2000, 2002, somewhere in there. Yeah. I, I was very late to the game. I think you're sensing a theme here. Well, I said that at the, t- the beginning yeah. of all of this, but, but particularly the British invasion was not like yeah. something that I was particularly warm to at the time. I think as I've grown older, I have more of an appreciation for Les Mis and for Phantom yeah. in particular. Um, I've actually seen Phantom several times um, in the yeah. last few years with you most recently. And I saw it the year before that um, with someone else. And, uh, and, and, and I agree with you. I, I don't care for the score. It's not a score I would ever listen to. But as an experience, as a theatrical experience, it's stunning. And, and primarily for the reasons you state seeing it now, it's in tip-top shape. And so you're absolutely right about that. But it is, you know, it's Phantom. It's 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 it's, it's, it's the first show for so many people. You yes. know, in fact, a lot of these shows. I mean, you know, that's that's another theme of these so of these them, hits, yeah. right? Is that they're the somebody's they're they're the first show for many many people. But Phantom yeah. in particular, I yeah. think, is is one of those shows that even people that don't go to the theater or don't care for the theater, they've all seen Phantom and they love it. So it, yeah. it, well, and and they've sold over 18 million tickets yeah. uh, on Broadway alone, 130 million worldwide. The Broadway show has grossed 1.2 billion dollars. I mean, wrap your head around that. 1.2 billion dollars. It's the third highest grossing show of all time, and the show has a worldwide gross of over six billion dollars. So it's uh, there's certainly something to it, um, and you know, it even spawned a sequel 
which we talked about in the flops, should never happen. We didn't talk about Love Never Dies because uh, I I don't actually know it at all. But no, uh, neither one of us. Well, we hadn't yeah. seen a lot of the flops. I yeah, will right. say I, <laughs> I I have heard from a few people that were a little disgruntled that we didn't include, oh, include that Love Never Dies. Yeah. But well, you know, eh, yeah. flops part two. Well, part three. <laughs> someday. Flops part, yeah, three and four. Um, <laughs> we may end up doing that someday. Yeah, right. Well, moving on to our last uh, major British invasion show, uh, and that would be Miss Saigon, which arrived on Broadway in the year 1991 and ran uh, nine years and nine months through 2001, over 4,000 performances. This was another musical by Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alan Blubiel, uh collaborating with Richard Maltby Jr. And... This one, unlike Les Mis, which was started out written in French, this was written um, in English uh, to begin with and premiered on the West End in 1989 and was inspired, in fact, by uh, a photograph that Claude Michel Schoenberg um, happened to catch in a magazine of a Vietnamese mother leaving her child uh, at a departure gate at, a, at an airbase to board an, a, a, an airplane to the United States where uh, her, her child's father, an ex-GI, would be basically adopting her and, and giving her the life she could never have in Vietnam after the war. And he was so struck by this photo that uh, it inspired him to you know, go to his longtime uh, collaborator and construct a musical around it. And where they landed was doing an adaptation of Puccini's opera, uh, Madame Butterfly, setting it during the Vietnam War. And that photo, if you remember from the 1990s, was behind the title page in the playbill so that audiences uh, would have that same moment of connection and would understand that this isn't just some tale that they came up with or adapted, that it was real life and that, you know, there are real people behind, you know, this, this devastating story. They are not nice, they're mostly noise. They swear like men, they screw like boys. I know there's nothing in their hearts But every time I take one in my arms It starts The movie in my mind the dream I love Miss Saigon and I understand particularly through the lens of 2020, why it is incredibly problematic in, it, in its depiction of Asian characters and certainly this long-time casting controversy that surrounds it. Um, and I know for some members of the Asian American community, you know, it, it's in fact, you know, quite painful. And it's a rather unfortunate, you know, fact uh, surrounding the show. But it was a tremendous, tremendous hit on Broadway. That it was. And in fact, exception to my Jamie, I hate British invasion rule. Yeah. I love Miss Saigon. I loved it from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, I saw it early on. And, and I, you know, for me personally, I, I love the story and I love, mm-hmm. I love Madam Butterfly. It's, it's yeah. source material. You will be who you Stop 
I respond very passionately to it. Um, that said, it is problematic, and um, and and it has been from the beginning, as you referenced Jonathan Price getting cast as the engineer, and and he was not an Asian uh, actor, and and that was a big controversy. We've even talked about this on our show with David Henry Wong, who was um, not only very vocal about it at the time, he yeah. sort of wrote a play about it. So uh, you know, it it is not without controversy. It does have a marvelous score. Um, a really, really beautiful score. It was a massive hit. And oddly, it didn't win the Tony Award for Best Musical that year. It lost to Tommy Toon's Will Rogers Follies, which is so fascinating to me. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I mean, I think the controversies surrounding the casting Mm -hmm. had a lot to do with it. I think, you know, the, I think that was a very serious uh, thing. And I think that people responded to that, but I also think it's a musical about a very unpopular war, the Vietnam Mm -hmm. war at a time where we were in the middle of another very unpopular war. And and I think that juxtaposed with the Will Rogers Follies, which was just color and glitz and 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 pure fun. Americana, pure yeah. Americana at, at, yeah. at a time where you know a lot of people were not with the president, they were not with the yeah. war. It was a very controversial um, thing, and uh, we were still dealing with the ramifications of the the Reagan administration. You know, Anita Hill was a thing that was happening and just shocking and horrible. So I I can see why Will Rogers Follies was such a tonic. Um, And, and, but it's, it's for sure. It's also a really great musical. It is a really great musical. But, but here, here again, we have a musical that, um, that didn't win Best Musical, but then it went on to run and run and run and run and be revived and have multiple productions all over the world. And, and controversy or not, it strikes a chord with people. And hundred uh, percent, yeah. And and what we'll pick, what what we'll see, especially as we get closer to the present, is a lot of the hit shows were not critical hits and did not win awards, but went on to run a really long time. And we'll see that increasingly, especially as we enter the twenty first century, where there's a real departure between what is critically celebrated and what runs a long time. So far, pretty much every show we've talked about, with the exception of maybe you know some noise around cats and lame is, you know, was acclaimed at its at, at, at the time of its arrival on Broadway. What's that I smell in the air? The American dream sweet as a new millionaire. The American dream prepack and ready to wear my American dream. 
like a chocolate eclair as I suck out the cream. Luck by the tail, how can I fail? Best of all, it's for sale. Miss Saigon broke records when it opened, right? They had a record advance ticket sale of $24 million, the highest ticket price ever for a Broadway musical at a stunning $100 uh, for the, the front of the mezzanine, I believe, and certain orchestra seats. It was definitely the front mezzanine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they were able to repay their investors in under 39 weeks, which, which is you know, unheard for, of. I mean, that's for a huge musical yeah. that was, you know, millions and millions of dollars, you know, pretty stunning. It remains today the 13th longest running Broadway show, grossed nearly $300 million in that first production with a worldwide gross of over $1.6 billion. Um, there's a film that's sort of been in perpetual development. Maybe someday we'll see it. And there was a helicopter. We haven't talked about the helicopter. Well, you know? I people, was going to ignore it because I actually think the, heli- love the helicopter. I you know? think it's a bunch of bullshit. I, the helicopter <laughs> never did it for me. I, it was a. He doesn't know. like a helicopter. We're discovering, you know. No, I mean, um, well, <laughs> it, amazing. Well, to wrap up our our, our, our British invasion, um, you know, those are the four big ones. Of course, there were other shows as part of the British invasion. Some not so successful. Um, Song and Dance, Starlight Express, Chess, huge flop, Aspects of Love, um, Buddy, which came in the early 90s, which huge, was a huge hit, Me and My Girl, um, you know, which was another big hit. So, you know, the 80s and early 90s was really a time, of course, you know, Sunset Boulevard. Um, well, I was going to say, I was surprised to see Sunset Boulevard not on this list because to yeah, me yeah. that was sort of the end of the British invasion. Yeah. That was yeah. the show that, that um, I, I think... Sunset Boulevard. Look, I have a I have a history with this show. Cards on the table, um, but I, I think it was a magnificent show, and I realize I'm a little close to the flame on that. But I will say that I think that part of the negativity around Sunset Boulevard was the fact that we were just tired of these types of musicals with these huge sets that had a gimmick. Mm -hmm. In this case, it was, you know, the staircase or the fact that the house went, you know, lifted it 30 feet into the air. And, you know, I I think we were just tired of that. Um, So I think it's it's worth noting that it, it sort of closed this chapter. Yeah. And, you know, Sunset Boulevard was on Broadway in 1995. And the next year, if not the next season, um, we saw a shift. And that's our next category, category eight. Um, we're dedicating this category to the year 1996, not the season, but the year. And the first show is sort of the opposite of the British invasion, right? And Jamie, what is that show? That would be Rent. We're not gonna pay. We're not gonna pay. Again, another sort of adaptation of an opera. This time it's yeah. uh, Puccini's La Boheme. Uh, I think everybody knows that it, it's set in the East Village in uh, the late 80s, um, which I think a lot of people forget. I think a lot of people yeah. think that it's actually set around the time it came out, but it's technically uh, the late 80s. 80, 89 yeah. to 90, right? Yeah, that's, it's, the, it's, the, that's, a, that's a fact I think, I think people forget. Yeah. 
again, speaking of being close to the flame, this is probably the only true hit I ever worked on in my time mm. working on Broadway. I had the unique pleasure of holding the house seat book for about a year. Um, <laughs> that was my job, doing house seat orders on this show. And I got to talk to a lot of... Um, a lot of, lot, of, lot of cast members from the hit TV show Melrose Place would call me. <laughs> uh, I got quite a few gifts for getting people into the show. But okay. all that aside, Rent was a real game changer. In a, mm. in a, this is a long list of shows that were game changers. Yeah, um, Rent, sort of like a chorus line though, right? It's it, in that same vein. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, it was a, it's a realistic look at um, a, a, a group of youngsters uh, dealing with uh, AIDS, dealing with drug addiction, dealing with a lot of things that were very part of the culture at that time. A lot of things we were talking about or, or trying to talk about. And then it had this great rock score, if you can mm. call it a rock score. I, I don't think it is. I think it's actually quite a conventional musical theater score. So the thousand sweet kisses. If you're cold and I'll you're lonely. You. With a thousand sweet kisses. You've got one nickel only. You. With a thousand sweet kisses. When you're born I'll cover you. With a thousand sweet kisses. When And it shook New York up. There's no other way to say it. Yeah. And then it also had the very tragic story that coincided with its opening, which is its creator. And, and quite frankly, the, the, not only the man that wrote the show, but it's about him. It's about all his friends. I've met Maureen. I've met mm. Mimi. I've met these people. They, they exist to a certain extent. Um, although some of them, you know, claim they- Composites. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but the point is, Jonathan Larson died during the, um, during the preview period, I believe, at the New York Theater Workshop. I think he died um, the, the, the night before it was to open at the New York Theater Workshop. And it just kind of wrapped itself around this beautiful musical. And, and you can't extract one from the other anymore. Well, because the show itself is, um, through all of the challenges that the characters encounter, ultimately a celebration of life and the idea of, you know, no day but today, right? Right. And, and to have its creator, to have his life tragically cut short on the eve of it becoming this uh, runaway success, you know, it, the, you couldn't pitch that story to, you know, to a Hollywood producer, right? I mean, it, it's it's so tragic and self-fulfilling and not self-fulfilling, but you know what I mean? It, it's sort of all of a theme. And well, because he struggled, right? He struggled right, as a, a composer time. for a long time. Yes. And the show was in development for a long time, a long, yeah. long time. And, and, and he really didn't write a whole lot beyond rent. You know, there's tick, tick, boom. And, and, and he did, he had a sort of a nightclub act. That's a composite yeah. of songs that bit, kind of became tick, tick, boom. But the point is rent was really the thing that he wrote. And there's a tragic, wonderful video out there. Or there was of him 
his last day at uh, the, I think at the Moon Dance Cafe, where he's saying goodbye, um, this goodbye, that goodbye, cash register, because he's going off to create the show at the New York Theater Workshop, and he would die not that long after that. And it's just yeah. heartbreaking to see this young kid literally hanging up his waiter's apron to go, mm. you know, pursue his dream in the musical theater world. And to have that cut so short, and 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 I think about you know we mentioned this earlier. We talk about the deficit of new musicals um, around this time period because we lost so many people to AIDS. And similarly, same thing with with Jonathan Larson. Think about all the incredible things he could have written or would have written, right? And the talent that he had. It's tr- it's tragic. It it really yeah. is. And. Part of the reason why the show, again, you know, received the reception that it did is not only because it was contemporary, right? It was, it was addressing contemporary themes and issues and really, really of the now in 1996. Um, but it also was an American musical, right? Mm-hmm. It, was an Amer- it was an American writer making his debut on the highest platform in the theater world once it came to Broadway. And how exciting and thrilling that was for the American theater to be able to say, you know what, we got our mojo back. We're going to, we're going to, you know, bring American musicals to audiences again, because that really hadn't been happening in a sustained way for a long time, not with anything new. I mean, crazy for you was a big deal in 1992. Um, and it was, you know, for the same reason, right? It was finally a, not a British musical, but that was, you know, using existing material and, you know, and obviously Ken Ludwig's book was new, but using the Gershwin songbook. So it was still a bit of a nostalgia piece. This was about right now in the same way that Hair was about right now in 1968 and A Chorus Line was about right now in 1975. This wrote a moment and it became part of the zeitgeist and then made that leap, probably the biggest leap that any musical would make until Hamilton to being part of the popular culture and specifically the song Seasons of Love, right? Which Stevie Wonder recorded and, you know, became a song that everyone knew, whether you were a theater fan or not. And that cast album, which is phenomenal, just sold like gangbusters. also had a hugely powerful fan base right yes it it, it you know kids would it, it was again also you know the, the other thing i think we need to mention is that the economics of broadway were radically shifting quickly yes. at this time period mm-hmm. ticket prices were soaring you know mm-hmm. premium although the the vip thing hadn't happened yet but the scalper thing was really big you know there was a huge um i mean it's sort of it's leading up to the producers which we'll talk about in a second which which began the whole premium seating or or vip ticketing process but but it's still very much in that moment where tickets were skyrocketing and yeah. rent did that thing where it had you know the first two rows of the orchestra were, I think, $20 tickets. And yep. kids would camp out overnight. It was it became kind of controversial, right? Because the overnight lines became kind of rowdy and became a party. Yeah. And there was sort of a dark side to it. It, it, it got a little 
crazy. And I think they ended up changing that sleeping out on the street policy. But the point is, it spoke to, as you mentioned, a generation, and they responded, and they rallied around it. It was the first show in many years to be on the cover of Time and Newsweek, which doesn't mm-hmm. seem like a big thing to us now, because we don't live in that that media yeah. world. Print media, right. Quite yeah. like we did. But that was a huge deal, right? Mm-hmm. Rosie O'Donnell, who was at the height of her powers as a sort of arbiter of taste and theater and speaking to middle America, had a huge influence in terms of helping rent get mm-hmm. into the homes of, you know, uh, uh, audience members that may not necessarily be drawn to it purely on its subject matter. And we yeah. haven't even talked about that cast. Take me for what Every single one of them gave iconic performances, so much so that I think it's kind of hampered the ability of the show to live on beyond that original production, you know, because these these performers are just so indelibly caked in the mind of fans of the show. You know, I, I mean, Anthony Rapp and Adam Pascal, right? I mean, Idina Menzel, Tay Ziggs, Daphne Rubin Vega, you've mentioned, Jesse L. Martin. I mean, I, that cast... They became stars. Most of them were making their Broadway debut. Many of them, you know, Idina Menzel was not a musical theater performer. She was a, you know, she was a singer on Long Island. She sang at bar mitzvahs, right? And like, she, uh, she got cast in this show. She was a recording artist. She's a studio artist. She'd never been in a musical before. Well, I, I think the two cast members that had the most credits were Toby Britton Parker and Jill Chasson, who were both chorus members. Right, right. And would not actually end up becoming hugely famous, but they were the ones who had actually done shows before. Um, yeah, Toby yeah. Britton Parker, who is Sarah Jessica Parker's brother, um, yeah. for a point of fact. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, you know, and I think one other thing to mention before we move on is that Rent also signified a shift in a new producing talent, right? Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum uh, emerged with Rent. And, um, you know, I mean, they weren't novice producers, but they were young and not from the world of Broadway. They weren't titans of Broadway. They weren't a corporation and they weren't Cameron McIntosh or Angela Ed Weber. They were, you know, young creative guys who got behind this really emerging artist and piece of work, championed it, got it to Broadway, and, you know, would go on to produce Avenue Q and Hamilton, you know, among other things for, you know, in Jeffrey Seller's case. And, in a way, it was sort of a returning of nonprofit theaters providing the pipeline to Broadway, right? Because that has become a more fruitful model in the past 30 years. Um, but in 1996, that hadn't really happened in a, in a bit that you had, I mean, uh, other than the public theater, which had sourced a lot to Broadway, for New York Theater Workshop in the East Village to be the original home of a piece that would come to Broadway. Of course, you know, since then, they've done Once and Town and What the Constitution Means to Me. And, you know, there's a whole long list of, of great works that they have championed and, and brought to the public. But at the time, you know, this was a big deal for New York Theater Workshop to, to 
put a show on Broadway. There's a very real fact that if it hadn't been for Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum, Rent mm-hmm. would not have happened. I think um, they took yeah. a chance on on this in a in a world where no one else may have. I, I also want to say just before we move on, the thing about the cast and um, yeah. you know that that production. I saw the 20th anniversary tour um, in San Francisco a couple of years ago, and. What I was struck, I was struck by two things. One, they did the original set in costumes. And I thought, oh, we, which I understand why they did that. But I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great to see this with a fresh look? But what was so incredible was the cast, they were all 20-year-old unknowns. And they brought this energy to the piece that I hadn't seen since the early days of Rent on Broadway. And I think that there's a very real version of another production of Rent, hopefully not too far off, where they go back to hiring 20-year-old unknowns. They give it a fresh look. And I think it could speak to audiences again, like it did, particularly now, like it did in the 90s. I agree with you. I think at some point in the future, hopefully 10, 20 years from now, um, someone else will come and, and visit it with new eyes, like you know, like Daniel Fish did with Oklahoma or Eva Van Hove did with West Side Story, you know, maybe not as radical, but someone will, 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 will approach it with no preconception and will deliver a new version of Rent that will speak to audiences the way, as vividly and as thrillingly as it did in 1996. And I can't wait for that. I'm still waiting for that to happen with A Chorus Line, by the way, as well, because I think that's another <laughs> show that, you know, because it's, 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 it was so of a moment and the original production was so iconic that it just keeps getting reproduced. Um, but that's just me on my soapbox. Rent ran for 5,123 performances. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1996, uh, four Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and it remains today the 11th longest-running Broadway show. Moving on to the fall of 1996, although that same spring, uh, it, was still bu- it was starting to bubble up, we received the revival of Chicago. Oh, yes. Which began at uh, City Center as part of their Encore series uh, in May 1996. And from the minute that production began, people knew. uh, And people were whispering and saying, oh my God, this is a sensation. It's got to come to Broadway. And uh, Fran and Barry Weisler uh, took that production, did some revisions and some expansions, but retained that same, you know, spare and minimalist style that you get or used to get with an Encore's concert. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Right. No sets. No costume. Very, very pared down. And put it on Broadway where it is still running. It over 24 is. years later. 
And Chicago, I mean, this is Broadway's longest running revival. It's the longest running show to have premiered on Broadway. And it's the longest running American show because uh, Phantom of the Opera uh, obviously uh, is a, a British show. But Chicago has an amazing story, right? Because it's a revival. And in 1975, the original production opened, uh, the original Bob Fosse-led production uh, opened on Broadway to, you know, a good mix of reviews, uh, some raves, some people less enthusiastic about it, but then was almost immediately just smothered by the runaway success of A Chorus Line. Chicago opened in June 1975, and A Chorus Line opened in July 1975. Uh, So Chicago didn't have the opportunity that perhaps it would have had in another season to to spread its wings and enjoy uh, its success and build an audience. And as a result, that original production closed um, after a couple of years, only to be, and then was somewhat, you know, forgotten, at least on Broadway, until 1996 with this Encore's concert, proving the genius behind uh, that original show, terrific Candor and Ebb score, and Bob Fosse and Fred Ebb's book, which I believe is one of the best uh, in, in musical theater. I also think that um, it's unfortunate that it came in the same season as A Chorus Line. Right. I think had it come a year earlier or a few years earlier, it would have been a very different story. As I originally do, planned. As originally know, Bob planned. Fosse had a heart attack. Yeah. yeah. Yes. However, I do think that its cynical nature yes. was, was mm-hmm. a tougher sell in the 70s, particularly in the mid-70s. But I think also in the earlier 70s, it would have been, it would have been tough. And I, I think you can't underestimate the impact of the O.J. Simpson trial and verdict mm. on America and on our culture having a lot to do with why audiences were so receptive to Chicago in the mid-90s. I think there's... I think that's a very clear-cut argument of what helped a brilliant, magnificent, nearly perfect show find its niche, find its audience, find its, its just due. And then those two bit Johnnies did it up round to cheer the best attraction in town. They nearly tore the balcony down. And we'd say, okay, fellas, okay, we're going home. But here's a few more. Parton shots! And this, oh, this we did in perfect unison. Symbols! It was in that way ahead of its time. A hundred percent. And it found its time. And sadly, what that means is that American society writ large became more cynical in the intervening years um, and more willing to, you know, to consume uh, Bob Fosse's uh, worldview, which certainly in 1975 was was a little bit more uh, of an outsider's view. Um, and, you know, it, it was very much his response to Watergate. Absolutely. And they wrote it during that, say, 1974, 1973, you know, as that uh, scandal was sort of gripping the nation. And perhaps, you know, there was also an element of fatigue at the end of that 
era, um, you know, to arrive at this moment and then have to live through something that's just so cynical. Yeah. But the show is the show. And I, much like Phantom of the Opera, I check into Chicago every year, at least once a year. And I'm so glad that I do because every time I see it, it's it's even better than I remember it being. It's a, it's a superb uh, reimagining of the original production. It's obviously not Bob Fosse's production. Uh, Walter Bobby, you know, directed this with uh, Anne Ranking's choreography in the style of Bob Fosse. Uh, I think the Hot Honey Rag is the only um, number in the show that is entirely Bob Fosse's choreography. But the the minimalism of it, the spareness of it, and the opportunity to see that choreography and to hear those songs and uh, get those line reads, you know, is I never pass it up because I think it's one of the best musicals ever written. And time has proven that to be true. Time has been very kind to it. As we've said, I, I, I agree with you that the score is fantastic. The whole conceit, yeah. the construction of it, yeah. everything about it. It really, it really is a marvelous musical. And and uh, and it's has stood the test of time and probably will continue to you know there's a lot of conversation about you know what shows will what shows will make it what shows will come back when yeah. when theater returns yeah. and and i don't see that we will be living in any less cynical of a world when things <laughs> return and i i yeah. hope there's a i hope there's a continued audience for chicago i also think it's really interesting um as someone who was around in in the nineties when Chicago um, first opened, yeah. there was a bit of criticism about the fact that they just moved the encore's production and that, you know, mm-hmm. there, it, it's so interesting to me when you look at the end of the British invasion and, and people's response to, Oh, no more helicopters, no more stairs, flying, chandeliers, no more yeah. chandeliers, like enough, enough, enough. And then we get Chicago, which is about as stripped down as you can be. And people yeah. are saying, well, there's no set and there's no costumes <laughs> and it's all off the rack, which, we right. all we know from our conversation with William Ivy Long, it is not off the rack. Those costumes are not only built for each person that goes into the show, they are of some of the most fine materials. He buys, mm-hmm. you know, listen to our interview with William Ivy yeah. Long and you can hear all about the brilliant yeah, yeah. costumes that go into Chicago and yeah. continue 20 years later. He still is making them each time. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Erica Girardi, who was the most recent Roxy Hart, who we saw do it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she went for her fitting in his studio and had that marvelous experience that everyone else has oh, had. Yeah. Well, you know, because it was so spare, it set the record for recovering its uh, investment faster than any other musical in Broadway history. And I bet that hasn't been <laughs> uh, bested yet in the years since because it was a very, very cheap musical to put on Broadway. Uh, and, you know, that also has helped its longevity. It opened at the uh, Richard Rogers Theater, which was formerly the 46th Street Theater, where the original production of Chicago opened in 1975. Moved to the Schubert, which is, you know, a bigger house. Uh, and then uh, moved to the Ambassador in 2003, um, the forgotten theater on 49th Street that uh, Bob Fosse had put uh, dancing in from the Broadhurst in, uh, in the late 70s. Um, strange so interior, a, that theater. Strange. Very strange interior. The, the, uh, it's, uh, it's a triangle. It's, uh, <laughs> it's kind a- of shoehorned into the, the plot of land that it's on. But the show has grossed uh, $674 million since 1996, making it the fourth highest grossing show in Broadway history. It won six 1997 Tony Awards uh, from eight nominations. Amazingly enough, I, I, this is one of my favorite fun facts. The original production of Chicago 
uh, holds the record for being the biggest Tony Award loser in history with 11 nominations and zero wins because, of course, A Chorus Line won them all that year. So it was vindicated in the end, of course, by running longer than A Chorus Line, by winning all those Tony Awards in 1997 and becoming a hit film in 2002. The Rob Marshall uh, film of Chicago won Best Picture uh, at the Academy Awards and is, I think, as good a film of Chicago as we would get uh, unless Bob Fosse had been able to make his Chicago film, which I'm sure would have been better. But, um, you know, the, the, the success of, of Chicago uh, is kind of unparalleled and really, you know, easily earns its spot among the greatest hits uh, in Broadway history. I gotta be Okay, well, moving on to our ninth category. This one is a big one. So this category is just called Disney. Beyond the the British invasion and the resurgence of American musicals in the 1990s, um, the other major thing, of course, that happened to Broadway in the 1990s was the arrival of Disney. And in the entirety of Broadway history, Disney holds claim to producing five of the top 25 highest grossing shows ever. And their shows collectively have grossed well over $3 billion, $3 billion. And that's just on Broadway, not even, you know, considering worldwide. So we couldn't talk about hits without talking, of course, about Disney. And it all began with Beauty and the Beast, which arrived on Broadway in 1994 and would run until 2007, a whopping 5,461 performances. That's a 13-year run of Beauty and the Beast. It's, you know, it's an extraordinary story. I actually worked on Beauty and the Beast in Los Angeles. I didn't know that. Yes, no, I, didn't I, know that. I worked on the, um, on the second company, which ironically was the original company. So everybody, the entire company from New York came out to Los Angeles. I think it was 1995. I could be wrong about that. But they all came out. Yeah. They all did wow. six months or so at the, um, the Schubert Theater, which no longer exists. And I worked on it. I, I have to be perfectly honest with you. It was not a particularly happy experience <laughs> for, for me as a, a press associate on the show, yeah. but also for the company. I think, I think by then they had all been with the show for a long time. I think they all came out to Los yeah. Angeles for a variety of reasons. Some of them stayed out there. Some of them still live out there. So it was a, it was a, fraught, it was a fraught thing. And however, I will say, I have grown very fond of that show over the years. I I wasn't that into it when I worked on it. I was sort of judgmental uh, of it at the time. And as I've gotten older and I, I reflect on it and I've seen various productions of it, I saw a beautiful stripped down version that toured a couple of years ago that was magnificent. And it, you know, it took away all the sort of the bigness of the show and really focused on the score and the story. And it was marvelous. It was such a wonderful, I'm so glad I saw that production because that's what sort of tipped the scales for me. Hmm. All that aside, it was a mega hit. And it's, it's extraordinary. Again, talk about a show that was so many people's first Broadway show. The other thing I think is interesting about Beauty and the Beast, is the fact that in 1999, it moved from the Palace Theater to the Lunt Fontaine, where they were able to 
reconfigure it a little bit, rework it a little, strip it down, make it less costly to run. And because of that fact, it ended up run and and there are what uh, like 250 less seats in the Lant Fontaine. Yeah. But with all of that, because of the brilliant producing that they did on this, that show ran eight more years. It ran almost twice as long at the Lunt than it did at the Palace. That's yeah. unbelievable. I mean, that to me is such a great story. And the thing about Beauty and the Beast, you know, it's easy to forget now because it can be overshadowed by all of the Disney productions that have followed. But, you know, we, when we talked to Tom Schumacher, who today, of course, is the head of Disney Theatricals, it was his word, not ours, that when Disney arrived on Broadway in 1994, they were a bit of a pariah, you know? I mean, Broadway was still a very mom-and-pop, you know, industry, uh, despite, you know, Cameron McIntosh and, you know, the big, you know, British shows. Those were still, you know, produced by impresarios. And it was very much, you know, a world that was kind of had this antipathy towards a major corporation coming in and producing a show. Now today we would kind of laugh at that because major corporations are invested in a lot of shows and Disney has proven its worth and is an amazing success story. But you know, this is 1994. This is before the revitalization of Times Square. This is before the new Amsterdam theater. This is before all of that. And Disney showed up and they put on a heck of a good show. Yeah. And it wasn't a theme park frivolity. It was a musical. It was a Broadway musical. And they had to prove their worth and they had to work very hard over, you know, the following decade to to really win over the Broadway community. And, you know, today Broadway, you know, is synonymous with Disney and vice vice versa, right? I mean, Disney is one piece of the Broadway ecosystem, but very much, you know, a part of that ecosystem. So Beauty and the Beast was an important proving ground because if it had failed, if they hadn't put up such a quality show, if they hadn't been able to you know, win that argument, we might not have gotten all the other Disney shows that followed, nor the sort of economic impact that Disney has had on Broadway as a whole, which, as far as I'm concerned, is only win, 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 right? If you, if you are able to introduce a young theater goer to a great Broadway show, or you're able to bring in someone, an, old, you know, a, an adult who otherwise might not have gone to the theater, you might spark something in them. You might hook them to want to see more Broadway shows, to want to participate and support the theater more. And that, I think, is Disney's greatest contribution to Broadway beyond the shows that they've put on. I agree with that. I, I also can't imagine a world where we don't have the new Amsterdam theater back. Oh I think gosh. that's a that's yeah. a huge that's a huge gift that the Disney Corporation yeah. has given to us. Uh, it's possibly the single best restoration of a theater um, that I know of, and it's yeah. just you sit in that theater. And it's just magic. It's so it's such a beautiful house. They've done such a gorgeous job of of renovating it and, and repairing it and keeping it pristine. So well, let's talk about sitting in that theater. So the first show to open that was a little concert of King David, but the second show to play at the New Amsterdam, drumroll, The Lion King. Three three the years. The Lion at, King. Three years after Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King would open. I was actually at that. I saw King David. I, oh yeah! I, oh yeah. Oh, I, cool. yeah! I I I was there. Um, and it. Uh, I took a field trip to the Circle Line, um, in fifth grade or fourth grade, and we drove down Forty Second Street. And I'll never forget passing the New Amsterdam Theater, and they had painted the street 
in anticipation of the Lion King coming. It hadn't opened yet. This was just the campaign leading up to the Lion King coming to Broadway. And it was so exciting. Yeah, it was. It was exciting. I, you know, again, this is, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about a time in New York where you have rent a year earlier, you have mm-hmm. Chicago, you have the Lion King. It really felt like a renaissance of... Ragtime, uh, cabaret. Uh, you know. Cabaret. That was, yeah. I mean, that production was, that, that again, another show that tore up the city. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Lion King was a game changer, is a game changer. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah, both for for Disney theatricals and also for Broadway. Um, It is the longest-running Disney theatrical production, um, the third-longest-running Broadway show, period, with 9,302 performances as of the shutdown. Um, It's been running continuously since 1997, first at the New Amsterdam and then since 2006 at the Minskoff, which, another great gift, it solved the problem of the Minskoff because that, that theater was housing flop after flop after flop almost throughout its entire history. Yeah, it's, until it's, the Lion King. It's, it's it's sort of like the big brother to the Marquis, right? Yeah, the, the Marquis's really older is. sister. Um, yeah, yeah, that's very yeah. real. Well, they're, um, they're 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 problematic houses for a number of reasons, but yeah. as you said, the Lion King fixed all that. Yes, yes, and the show you know is now the highest grossing Broadway show in history. It's number one. billion grossed on Broadway alone. And it's the highest grossing musical theater franchise worldwide with over $8.2 billion in grosses. Over 15 million tickets sold, 100 million worldwide. Um, And since 2014, The Lion King as a property is the top earning title in box office history across the board. So that includes film, uh, stage, surpassing The Phantom of the Opera, which had held that, that title before. So there's, you know, it's, it's the biggest hit of all the hits uh, if you're going by, you know, by those numbers alone. Well, and it's, it's so interesting, too, because when you look back at the uh, 1998 to- Tony Awards, you mm-hmm. know, I think a lot of people thought Ragtime was going to win. I think a lot of people yeah. thought, well, you know, the Lion King is the Lion King and it's this big juggernaut. And, you know, but Ragtime is the artistic piece. I, I I don't think that, but I'm just saying what the right. they may have thought in the day. Yeah. And it and it won Best Musical, and it was quite, I mean, you, yeah. you listen to, you go back and go to go to the YouTubes and, and yeah. pull it up, and you'll hear there's quite a surprised uh, audience reaction. Um, yeah. and, and, and look, we love ragtime. I don't, I'm not here to, I'm oh, not here I, to I disparage ragtime. ragtime. Yeah. I think it's, I think yeah. it's, I think it's quite possibly one of the greatest scores written, um, in the last 30 years without question uh, or ever or, or, or ever. Yes. And yeah. I think it's, I think it's a marvelous <laughs> musical. We could do a whole podcast just on ragtime alone. Yeah. But my point in saying all this is that, you know, that even from the get go, the Lion King was sort of form breaking and game changing and surprising in so many ways. Oh, and yeah. it continues yeah. to be that to this day. And we can't talk about the Lion King without talking about Julie Taymor who um, obviously was the sort of singular artistic uh, force behind uh, translating the film to stage as director and also costume designer of, of the piece and sort of lending her whole aesthetic to it with you know the inventive use of puppetry and solving for a lot of the difficult challenges of taking something that... Um, you know, lived on the screen and is so cinematic and, you know, is a story about animals um, and putting it on stage, right? I mean, there's a lot of daunting challenges from an artistic 
perspective of 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 putting this story on stage and she did it and boy did she do it and she won the tony award for best director becoming the first woman in 1998 ever to win the tony award for best director of a musical which was you know a, a big moment which when you look at it and think about it is shocking like oh it's pathetic it's pathetic but it's a shame but also i'm glad she won the lion king operates in your mind it it, it invites you to be complicit in the theater making, to collaborate, to bring your imagination to it. Um, you know, they don't hide the puppeteers. It's not about that. You see the puppeteers and that's the exciting things. You see the theater being made in front of you. Um, and that was, you know, her artistic impulse, obviously encouraged by Tom Schumacher and, you know, all the, the folks involved in, in getting this show on stage and making it, you know, what it is today, um, which is arguably the biggest hit in Broadway history. Yeah, and I think you make a good point. I think that at that time, certainly there's a lot of, of fabulous technology in The Lion King, and they certainly, yeah, of course. They certainly yeah. used all the modern conveniences, as they say. What Julie did, which was so interesting, was she actually went backwards from technology. She, right. went, she went back to some puppetry that was, you know, that, that is rooted in some very old theatrical traditions. And, yeah. and it was, it's terribly effective. We've arrived at our last category, which category number 10, and we've titled this 21st Century Juggernauts. Yes. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to tick through some of the most successful hits of the last 20 years, and we're going to try to do it as quick as possible because well, you know, we've been talking for a while. Okay, so first up is The Producers, which obviously was the first mega hit of the 21st century. Arrived on Broadway in 2001, had a six-year run that sort of belies the nature of its initial success, you know, because I remember very, very vividly the producers arriving on Broadway, and it was an absolute sensation unto itself. You know, it had the largest single box office ticket sales in theater history up to that point. 
taking in more than $3 million in ticket sales on the day after it opened, which was bested by the show two years later when stars Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick came back. And they sold $3.5 million worth of tickets in a single day. And it pioneered, as Jamie mentioned earlier, the idea of premium seating, charging what was then an unheard of, an unprecedented amount of $480 a ticket for 50 seats in the orchestra and in the first rows of the mezzanine. That was an attempt to eat at the market for uh, the secondhand market of scalpers, right? So that the the money would be going back to the show as opposed to be uh, being uh, scraped off the top by by a scalper. I don't think I don't think they ate. I think they devoured the scalper market. I mean, I think it really <laughs> it really that whole concept just devastated that market. And you know, better better for the shows to get it. Better for the shows to get it, but of course, it only aided in a trend of Broadway ticket prices skyrocketing. You know, oh, in two thousand and one. You know, the average high was $100. And that was a lot of money to pay $100 to see a Broadway show in, you know, in 2001. And now, forget about it. You can't see, can't sit in an orchestra seat in a Broadway show for what, $179, $200, right? No. And I, I would venture to guess that um, we may see uh, the end of these premium tickets, certainly for a while. Maybe. I think, yeah. I think yeah. of the things that will return when the theater returns. This might not be one of them, or the dynamics will shift yeah. for sure. But it did all begin with the producers, and it did it did in large part begin because of the, the demand of, of Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. I mean, that, that was such a sensation. It's, yeah. it's hard to really wrap your mind around it today because we don't really have that as much. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stunt casting. There's a lot of that sort of um, magic that happens, but nothing quite like the two of them. That was, it's, yeah. It was really a phenomenon. Name a better pair in musical theater history. And it's at the top of a Broadway musical. I mean, it's very hard. No, it, you're absolutely right. And you, you know, Rob, you know this about me because I'm quite vocal with you. I'm not a fan. <laughs> of, I'm not a fan of the producers. I don't like this musical. I dislike the score. However, I did see it a couple of times, and I saw it twice with Matthew and, and Nathan. And it was magic. As much as I disliked it while I was watching it, it just was not for me. I could not deny how brilliant they were together and how just you knew you were seeing something that you will never see again. You know, I, I mentioned this when we were talking about Hamilton. There are very few shows that live up to the hype. The producers, for me, was one of those shows that not only lived up to the hype, but far surpassed it. Susan Stroman, as director and choreographer, you know, at the height of her powers on Broadway with this show, which, you know, tragically had been set to be directed by her husband, Mike right. Ockren, who passed away in 1999. You know, and the whole show, of course, is, you know, a musical version of the 1967 film by Mel Brooks, which had won uh, the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. And it was David Geffen's idea to turn it into a stage musical. And when he approached Mel Brooks, and Mel Brooks his first impulse was to go to Jerry Herman and say, you know, Jerry, will you write the score for me? And a real 
example of Jerry Herman's modesty and his goodwill, he turned around and said to Mel Brooks, well, no, I know exactly who should write this show, and it's you. Because Jerry rightly noticed that throughout Mel Brooks's career, he had written songs for his movies, including Springtime for Hitler, but of course, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, and all those films had songs in them that he had written. He had no training, but he hummed into a tape recorder and Glenn Kelly transposed everything and Doug Besterman orchestrated it. And he wrote what I think is a great score. I know Jamie disagrees, but I think it's a classic musical theater Broadway score that holds a candle to any of the the greats from the golden age. That face, that face, that marvelous face, I never should begin. Those cheeks, that neck, that chin will surely do me in. I must be smart and hide my heart if she's within a mile. If I don't duck, I'm out of luck. She'd kill me with her smile. 15 Tony Award nominations in 12 categories, which was the record at the time. Won 12 Tony Awards, which is the record to date, which means it won every single category. Not even Hamilton did that. I remember watching the 2001 Tony Awards and being so bored because the producers just won everything. Literally everything. There wasn't a category they were nominated in that they didn't win. It remains today the 27th longest-running Broadway show and 16th highest-grossing show of all time at $288 million in box office gross. What's interesting about the producers, though, is that it didn't run as long as you probably would have thought it would have in 2001, because once Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick left, they were never quite able to recapture that magic with any of the casting that they did. But the show you know, struggled to do the same uh, business and sustain uh, once once they left. and uh, Well, I, you know. I'm going to probably get into trouble for saying this, but <sighs> I think that's a fundamental problem with the show. The fact that the show couldn't uh. quite go on after its two stars that it was sort of built around left. I think that's well, a flaw. Well, it still ran six years. Still what? ran six years, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for a show that won a record amount of Tony Awards, won every category. When we look at the length of how long all of the shows ran on this list, I would six years is a short run for this show that is a game changer and, you know, has all these accolades. That's all. And look, 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 before Twitter comes after me, I will say this, that I'd be very curious for me personally to revisit the producers and see what I thought yeah. of it. I'm older now uh, that, you know, it, it came at a time in my life personally where I was going through some tough stuff. So I was not in a great place. Um, all that aside, I, I'd be curious to see if I have a different reaction to it now than I did then. Well, it's, it's the only hit in the modern era. Um, and I say the modern era starting maybe, you know, in the seventies that was reliant on names above the title, right? None of the other shows you've mentioned, whether it was Grease, A Chorus Line, 42nd Street, any of the British Invasion shows, none of them were successful at the box office on the strength of the name above the title. So the producers had that, right? And that sort of you know doomed them from running for 15 years, but it still ran for six. Okay, moving on. Mamma Mia!, also arrived in 2001, uh, in the next season, the fall of 2001. Ran for 14 years, first at the Winter Garden, then at the Broadhurst Theater. 5,758 performances. Obviously, an original story based on the songs of ABBA. Mamma mia, here I go again. My, my, how can I resist you? 
the longest running jukebox musical on Broadway, the ninth longest running Broadway show, the sixth highest grossing Broadway show at $624 million, and a sensation unto itself. Jamie, what are your thoughts on Mamma Mia? Well, I never saw Mamma Mia on Broadway. Oh, okay. Uh, so I have to say that right off the bat. Um, yeah, I'm, look, put out, put out your cards. Well, yeah. you know, this is, this is a safe space, theoretically. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of ABBA, and I love their music. I had no interest in seeing the show initially in its, when, it, when it first opened. I did yeah. have tickets to go when Dehody took over, and yeah. for some reason I can't remember why we didn't go. But by the time I wanted to see Mamma Mia, it had become this thing right. and i didn't really want to sit in an audience of people dancing in the aisles and that didn't appeal to me <laughs> i have yeah. to say this and this is kind of funny a friend of mine did a production of mama mia in the bay area a few years ago and i went to see it because i love my friend and i loved it and i totally <laughs> got it and i loved yeah. the book i loved the story yeah. i loved the arc i loved Everything about it. I think it's a little unfair that the lead has all those power ballads run right after yeah. the other in the second act. That seems unfair to do to to anybody um, in any show. Yeah, eight times a week. That's yeah. tough. But I totally get it. I totally was swept up in it. I regret not seeing it early on in its run. That was a mistake on my part. That's what I have to say about Mamma Mia. Yeah. I saw it a couple times on Broadway, and I agree. I mean, I think of all the jukebox musicals that it's kind of the best one because it knows exactly what it is. It lives in a consistent world. It tells a great story. It's funny. It has great songs. And it built the story around the songs instead of the other way around, taking an existing story and trying to put the songs into it. So the, the songs, even if a little cheesy at times, do sort of organically grow out of the situations. And they were able to really reverse engineer because they weren't wedded to any you know, pre-existing stories. So they could do anything they wanted with it. And I think they did a great job. Now, there is some controversy because the plot is very similar to a 1968 film, Buenos Aires, Mrs. Campbell, which was the source material for 1979 musical Carmelina, which I knew nothing about until I saw Carmelina at the York Theater uh, last year. It's this very sweet musical by the score by, by Burton Lane and Alan Jane Lerner uh, with a book by Joseph Stein. But it's essentially the plot of Mamma Mia. Now, the book writer of Mamma Mia denies this, Katherine Johnson. She says, no, I had no idea of that film and the musical. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. Well, uh, you know. Exactly true. Uh, you know. I mean, look, uh, you know, Miss Saigon is Madame Butterfly. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. But, right. I, but I, understand, yeah, yeah. I understand why this is a slightly more controversial than that. But no, Mamma Mia, I'm here for it. Okay, moving on to 2003, Wicked, which uh, has been running at the Gershwin Theater since uh, 2003, over 6,836 performances. That now makes it uh, having run longer than a chorus line as a point of reference. It's the fifth longest running show in Broadway history. It's the second highest grossing show in Broadway history with $1.4 billion. 
in uh, box office grosses just from Broadway and a worldwide gross of over $3.5 billion. Uh, of course, based on the 1995 Gregory Maguire novel, Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, um, which uh, a friend gave to Stephen Schwartz while he was on vacation in Hawaii. And he says from the second he started reading it, he thought, this is my next project. This is my next musical. But then he found out that Universal Pictures had already optioned it to make a film. So he had to go to them and convince them that, no, 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 they shouldn't make a film. First, they should make a stage show. It should be a musical and it should be his musical. He won the argument, uh, came to Broadway in 2003, open to very, very middling reviews, if not um, borderline hostile. And 17 years later, it's still running. Popular, you're gonna be popular. I'll teach you the proper poise when you talk to boys. Little ways to flirt and flounce. I'll show you what shoes to wear, how to fix your hair. Really counts to be popular. I'll help you be popular. You'll hang with our right cohorts. You'll be good at sports. Know the slang you've got to know. So let's start, cause you've got an awfully long way to go. Don't be offended by my friends. I would venture a guess that Mark Platt and Universal are very glad that they decided to go with the musical version and put their project on hold. I'm, I'm sure oh, that's, yes. I'm sure they feel that way. <laughs> well, because now they're gearing up to make the movie and, um, you know, that I'm sure will be another, another phenomenon if, and, or when it comes out, who knows? Um, but wicked, one of the biggest hits ever, second highest grossing show in Broadway history. I mean, that's you know pretty incredible. What I think is interesting about this is that, um, you know, wicked had a sort of troubled road to Broadway. They had an out of town tryout at the current in San Francisco. It got mixed to negative reviews. Um, There was a lot of sort of bad buzz about it. And yet Stephen Schwartz, who is so smart, knew Mm. to build in time between the run in San Francisco and starting rehearsals in Broadway. And Winnie Holzman has said that that is what saved the show. The fact that they had that three months to work on what needed to be worked on and address whatever issues that needed to be addressed is what made the show ultimately work. And I think that is, and that's Stephen Schwartz, right? Right. That's, that was his thing. And that is somebody who knows their way around making theater, who understands the business and has an inherent sense of how to make something happen. Yeah, well, and it's also a real triumphant story for Stephen Schwartz because obviously he was the wunderkind of Broadway in the early 70s, right? He had Godspell, Pippin, and The Magic Show all running on Broadway concurrently, all big hits. And um, his next project, The Baker's Wife, was a you know disaster. And then Working was a huge flop. He worked on Rags, but he didn't have another show under his sole authorship until 2003 with Wicked. And he said, you know, candidly in interviews that the pressure of working on Broadway and the criticism almost drew him away from the field entirely. And he, that's why he went to work in Hollywood and, you know, worked on um, Hunchback of Notre Dame and, you know, Pocahontas and all these, um, you know, Disney films because he didn't feel comfortable. He didn't feel welcome. He didn't feel like Broadway was a space for him anymore. And I'm glad he overcame that and pushed through it to, to create Wicked, despite the fact that, once again, it didn't receive um, you know, particularly positive reviews and he didn't win a Tony Award. He's never won a Tony Award. He has a special Tony Award, um, but he's never won a competitive Tony Award. Um, you know, and yet he's penned some of the greatest you know, songs and musicals in Broadway history. So, you know, 
take that for what you will. Well, I'm not a huge fan of Wicked. I understand its success and I understand its appeal. It's not particularly yeah. a show that speaks to me. However, the score is magnificent. I love that uh, score. Really it really is. Yeah. It's 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 yeah. some of his best work, and I'm I I think it's a shame mm-hmm. he doesn't have a Tony Award for actually a specific score. I think they're all of yeah. them deserve right deserve it. But it, in this particular case, I, I do you know what won that year? What won best score? I don't even know. Oh, it was Avenue Q. Which also won best music. Yeah, it was a big upset. Oh, yeah, it was a big upset. I oh. was I was in. The house that night. I was at Radio yeah. City for that particular Tony Awards. And yeah, I can yeah, tell you deal. that was, uh, r- no matter where you stood in terms of what show you were rooting for, and believe me, everyone had an opinion and was divided that year. The, the Avenue yeah. Q winning was a crazy, crazy, crazy moment. Yeah, and, and, and if you haven't watched the Dory Berenstein documentary, Show Business, um, which documents the four musicals uh, on Broadway that season, you have to because it really captures um, the, that whole story quite dramatically. It really does. And I, I w- I'm a big fan of Avenue Q. Um, I think, interestingly, it probably doesn't hold up as well as even Wicked does. Um, it doesn't. And, it does not at no, all. And, and I, and I, <laughs> and I think that that's a real shame. I, I really do think that Wicked I, – I also think that Carolina Change should have won – well, for course, score. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, it's one of yeah. those, it was a stacked year. <laughs> yeah, it really was. And just to clear the air, I ask forgiveness for the things I've done you blame me for. But then I guess we know there's blame to share. And none of it seems to matter anymore. Okay, so before we loop back to Hamilton and, and end this three-part episode, I feel like we just have to mention really briefly the one other big juggernaut of the 21st century that's sort of the precursor to Hamilton, and that was the Book of Mormon, which um, you know, is still running on Broadway. Well, was as of March. It's been uh, running for nine years and you know, was its own sensation when it opened in 2011 and grossed a ton of money. I mean, I think it's the fifth highest grossing show in Broadway history, recouped in nine months. So it felt odd for us not to mention it, although I think neither one of us has much to say about the Book of Mormon because it's the Book of Mormon and, you know, everyone knows what it is and uh, it's just uh, another certifiable big hit. What do they always say? 
if you don't have something nice to say, <laughs> right. come sit by me. Right, right. Well, Helen Shaw went back and re-reviewed the show last year. And all I'll say is go find that review, read it. And I agree with it 100%. I, I co-sign Helen Shaw. Well, I think this brings us to the end of our epic, epic. three-part look at hits, right? So epic, yeah. Well, it turns out Broadway has a lot of hits. Well, it does. And, uh, you know, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. The the late 90s really felt like a renaissance, and mm. it really felt like a resurgence of another sort of golden age of musicals, which is why I think we had to make this a three-part episode, yeah. because clearly there was a lot to talk about in the latter part of the 20th century, but also in the early days of the 21st century, which brings us full circle back to Hamilton. Yes, yes. You know, there is, there's nothing quite like Hamilton. I mean, it's, it's the biggest hit we've seen uh, in, in what feels like decades in terms of its cross-cultural impact and, uh, you know, its ability to really become a part of mainstream American culture, which, you know, rarely happens for a musical these days. And of course, culminating in the premiere on Disney Plus of the uh, the pro shot of the show from back in 2016 with the original cast, which, of course, is all anyone's talking about <laughs> right now. And, you know, it, it's funny. I, I feel like after Hamilton, it's like, well, there'll never be another show as big as Hamilton, right? But I'm sure people said that after Oklahoma ran five years. They were probably like, oh, there'll not, never be anything like Oklahoma. So I guess we're just going to have to wait and see uh, when the next Hamilton comes. I certainly remember during Rent that mm. a lot of people were saying there will never be another Rent. And right. then a few years go by and boom, there it is. The funny thing about that is that you know there won't be another Hamilton because the next thing will be its own thing, right? So that, and, and you won't be able to, to to even compare, right? It'll it'll elevate the form even more. And what I always you know say, and as I said at the top of this whole episode, is that you know for me. Hamilton is just a triumph of the form of musical theater. And it, it falls in line with the, the tradition of all the great shows. I agree with that. I also think that it, it's the perfect example of the title of our show, The Fabulous Envelope. Mm. This is what we've been talking about now for five full episodes, right? Yeah. That, that there, the theater has its ups and it has its downs. We are sadly in a very down place right very now. Very down, but, yeah. But we will be back. Hamilton will be back. Many of the shows that we've discussed will will come back, will get revived. Who mm -hmm. knows? Maybe we'll see Bring Back Birdie. Maybe there'll be a <laughs> revival of that someday. Wouldn't that uh -oh, be great? Uh-oh, uh-oh, yeah, yeah. Calling Leslie Kritzer. Oh, okay. Well, that I would, I'm always here for Leslie on stage. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, well, I think we should wrap it up. And not yep. only are we wrapping up this little mini-series, but we're wrapping up season two of The Fabulous Invalid. So we're going to take a break for the summer, and we'll be back in the fall. Yeah, and it's been an interesting year. It's been a challenging year. It's been a tough year on everyone. But Rob Russo, I have to say that I am eternally grateful that we have been able to continue to do this. It's been a lot of fun. It will be fun to do it again uh, in a few months. And uh, I can't wait to see what we do for season three. I You'll know it's all true, you'll just feel it. 
You'll be a Mormon. By gosh, a Mormon just has That's our show. Thanks for listening. At this difficult time, please consider making a donation to the Actors Fund at actorsfund.org. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Charles Van Kirk. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.